Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is part two of the story of Brian's Station, titled Simon Gertie's Revenge. As you recall from part one, the British attack on Brian's Station, led by the ruthless Simon Gertie and his Indians, failed to breach the walls and left over 30 dead Indians outside the fort. The Indians, realizing that all this was costing them many lives, and costing the British and their Canadian rangers nothing, were deciding whether or not to pull out. The settlers inside Bryan Station were expecting another attack, and praying that the British would not be receiving cannons, because if they did, that would mean the end of their settlement, and for many of them, their lives. Their one hope was reinforcements. Our story continues now. The story of Bryan Station, Part 2, Simon Gertie's Revenge. As the hours passed, they poured more rifle balls, and wondered if the messengers they sent had made it out. They did not know that the messengers had made it to Lexington, but that Lexington's force had been decoyed out and was on its way to Hoy's Station. The messengers had continued on to Boone Station, which was near the site of present-day Athens. That site, located on Gentry Road outside of Athens, was abandoned around 1786 when Boone moved to Mayville, they were able to alert a force of 16 mounted men and 30 footmen under the command of Captain Ellis, and they made haste toward Bryan's Station. When Daniel Boone received news of the siege of Bryan's Station the following day, he also led a force from nearby Boonesboro toward Bryan's Station. Meanwhile, the Indians returned, this time trying to do all the damage they could while staying out of the line of fire, and labored with persistent energy to pick off sentries at the fort. Rifle fire, coming from every tree and place of hiding around the fort, started taking its toll, resulting in the killing of two men in the garrison that day, Atkinson and Mitchell, and in the wounding of gallant Nicholas Tomlinson, who would later meet his fate as part of the Hardens expedition. Jacob Stucker, who was with Boone in 1780, when Boone pursued the savages who had killed his brother Edward, had a hand in the fray, for the tale is told of his actions during the siege when little Betsy Johnson ran to her mother with the news that Jake Stucker had just killed an Indian, to which her mother replied, "'What's one Indian?' Tradition holds that many of the best Indian shots came from behind a sycamore tree on the north bank of the creek, until a disgusted settler saw something move and fired, causing an Indian to tumble through the branches and to the ground. Indians were not known as expert marksmen back in those days. He had climbed the tree to get a better field of range into the fort. One hundred years later, only the big hollow trunk of that tree remained, charred and blackened by the torch of a careless hunter, but it served as an interesting relic of the battle that had been fought a century ago. Now the Indians used flaming arrows to try and destroy the unburnt sections of the fort. The arrows fell in showers among dry cabin roofs made of clapboards. By design, all the cabins were shed-shaped so that the roofs sloped inwardly, and the younger boys of the station were posted on the roofs to sweep the arrows off the roofs without danger of being shot, although they still risked being struck by arrows. Simon Gertie was taking measures to prevent the fort from being reinforced, knowing that the two messengers sent out that morning had escaped. He knew the relief force would arrive from the north, so moved most of his men from the south end near the spring to both sides of the trace leading down to the north gate where he could ambush the relief party. The firing soon ceased, and the hidden savages awaited the relief force. At two o'clock in the afternoon, the hot and tired relief force came within sight of the fort, and they halted in amazement, because although there was smoke rising from the cabins, there was nothing to indicate that the fort was still under attack. Not a gun was heard, not an Indian was seen. To some of the younger men, it seemed that this relief call was a false alarm, but to the more experienced woodsmen, 
the silence was reason for caution. The leaders believed that an ambush was in place, and they arrayed their force for the desperate effort they knew it would take to reach the fort. It was arranged that the mounted men would make a dash for the north gate, while the men on foot were to push around through the cornfield on the same side of the trace as the fort. The order was given, and the footmen silently began to move through the corn toward the south gate. The sixteen mounted men, led by Captain Ellis, spurred their horses and raced toward the north gate, kicking up a cloud of dust down the trace toward the fort. Instantly there was a burst of rifle shots and war hoops from the Indians who covered both sides of the path. There was a gauntlet of death, but the dust helped to conceal their forms, and miraculously every man and horse reached the fort without a scratch, accompanied by the cheers of all the men of the garrison. The footmen, however, were not so fortunate. They had rushed back to aid their friends when they heard the first shots from the ambush, and now they were taking on Gertie's entire Indian force, which outnumbered them by twelve to one at least. They were now cut off from the fort, and realizing that their effort to save their comrades was likely going to cost their lives. Nothing but the fact that the Indians had just discharged all their rifles, and the fact that the footmen were obscured by the corn prevented their total annihilation. The footmen ran deep into the corn, dodging and darting in every direction. It was then that John Sharp, one of the Lexington militia, escaped the corn and made it to the fort. There was wild pursuit going on within the fully grown corn. Yells, screams, and the flashing of tomahawks as settlers and Indians met in hand-to-hand combat, their rifles nearly useless in this close-quarters fight. Rifle shots were rare, but there were instances, one being that of a defender who had reloaded and was closely approached by James Gertie, Simon's brother, who had also turned savage. And he fired and hit Gertie, who fell, but soon got up, finding that the bullet had hit a thick piece of leather that he wore around the strap of his powder horn. The bewildering turmoil ended with the escape of most of the infantry through the woods and the cane breaks, and finally returning to the fort, so the casualties were few. Two footmen were killed and four wounded, a miracle considering the odds. It was nearly sunset when the angry savages and rangers abandoned their pursuit, and from that time until nightfall they wreaked their vengeance on everything they could, burning all the outbuildings and fences, destroying the hemp crop that the settlers needed for rope, pulling up the vegetables, cutting down the corn, and sweeping the settlement out of all its livestock. Three hundred hogs and a hundred and fifty head of sheep were killed, according to British estimates, and every horse outside the stockade was stolen. The Indians held a council, led by Chief Waluntha, the only war chief present that we know of by name, and decided that the fort was impregnable, and as far as the Indians concerned, they wanted to abandon the siege. After all, all the crops had been destroyed, the livestock was all killed, and the settlers had no chance to survive the winter. They had done their job. But Gertie wasn't about to give up. He walked through a section of the tall, now damaged hemp, stood on a stump, and called to the fort, asking if they knew who he was. He proclaimed himself leader of Caldwell and his Tory rangers, boasted of the number of warriors he had at his command, and demanded a surrender. Any further resistance, he said, would ensure the deaths of the settlers. He also said he was expecting the arrival of artillery at any time, and that when it arrived, he would blow the stockade to pieces, whereupon he and his warriors would attack and kill every man, woman, and child. If they surrendered, however, they would be spared, he said, and every man, woman, and child in the fort heard him say that. They were all aware of their position, and knew that they couldn't hold on for long without more water and food. They all knew what might well happen to all of them, and they hated and distrusted Gertie. Wiser heads in the group did not believe that cannons were on the way. As Gertie's false promises went on, the pioneers were silent, knowing they were going to fight to the death, 
but wondering how each of them would face it when it came. It was then that one of the younger riflemen named Reynolds, so wrought up by Gertie's threats that he ignored the unspoken restrictions of age and rank, spoke back to Gertie from a rifle port, answering him in genuine backwoods style, using words with the bark on, as Boone later put it. "'We all know you, Gertie,' he scornfully cried. "'I have a trifling dog named Simon Gertie, because he looks so much like you. "'Bring on your artillery, if you've got any, and be damned to you,' he yelled. "'And if you or any of your naked rascals get into this place, "'we will thrash you out again with switches we've gathered for that purpose, "'for we wouldn't want to waste bullets against the likes of you.' "'He ended his reply with a loud and confident statement. "'We too are expecting reinforcements. "'The whole country is marching toward us.' "'and if you or your gang of murderers stay here another day, "'we'll have your scalps drying in the sun "'on the roofs of these cabins.' "'Gertie ended his speech by saying "'that it would be impossible to save any of them "'once his artillery arrived. "'They had only one choice if they wanted to live,' he said, "'and that was to surrender. "'Gertie then retired to his camp, "'insulted and incensed. "'He knew they weren't going to surrender, "'and he knew that he had no cannon coming, "'and he also knew that the settlers' reinforcements "'were very likely on the way. "'But he was determined to win this, and a plan started forming in his mind before he even reached his camp. This would be the most subtle and successful attack he ever made, one which would at least draw the settlers away from Bryan's station and bring about the most terrible defeat they had ever witnessed on Kentucky soil. He would hit them at blue licks. That night was the longest and most terrible that Bryan's station had ever known, and many a fervent prayer went up from the fort's inhabitants. James Morgan Bryan thought of his wife still under the floorboards of their cabin just outside the fort, and wondered feverishly if she had been captured or burned to death when the cabin was set afire. Some laid awake through the night. Others tried to sleep, knowing the next day might be very long and hard and deadly. They were cut off from relief, surrounded by killers, faint now from thirst, and many were grieving for dead or caring for wounded. Time and again, a volley of shots, designed to keep them on edge and awake, were fired at the fort, and the defenders sprang to the portholes. Finally, after what seemed an endless night, the sun dawned on August 17th. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. There's something about a morning sun that instills hope in people. Maybe it's the promise of at least one more day, or a part of a day on earth. It's a renewal, a rebirth, a signal that the darkness must always give way to the light. It's a sign to many that God exists, for whoever associates God with darkness. God said, let there be light, and there was light was a phrase that every pioneer knew from the Bible. At first light, the sentries looked out upon the enemy campfires, but heard and saw nothing. All at once they were startled by a distant shot and the sound of a galloping horse, and they saw a rider in familiar buckskins riding toward the north gate and wildly waving his hat. Their hearts leapt into their throats, and they tore open the gate, whereupon the messenger, wild with delight, dashed in, yelling at the top of his voice, "'They're gone! The redskins are gone!' The great news, instantly verified by the sight of the deserted enemy camp, seemed to verify what he was saying. Their gloom instantly turned to joy, and the atmosphere turned to one of excitement. The leader sent out scouts to hunt for sign that the enemy had truly departed, and that this was no ruse. Although caution stayed in place, the people of the fort could now scavenge for food and water, much of the food coming from what remained on the roasting sticks at the enemy camp, which contained the last shreds of the herds of pigs and sheep. A little while later, a portion of the garrison carried their four dead heroes down past the ruins that the torch and tomahawk had made to the trees near the spring and buried them there. 
they then buried the 30 bodies of slain Indians, noting that the Canadian rangers had not participated in those battles, preferring to watch from a distance. As one historian put it 100 years later, this ended one of the most remarkable sieges known in the history of Indian warfare, especially notable for the number of strange events which occurred in the favor of the small garrison. Events that were crowded into so short a time that even a fatalist would see the hand of destiny in every stage of its progress. The early firing that prevented the march of the riflemen. The wonderful escape of the couriers who were sent for help. The wind that saved the station from flames. And the almost miraculous success of the desperate cavalry charge through 400 armed Indians. All day on the 17th the settlers worked to get things back in order and plan the rebuilding of cabins. As the sun went down on the worn-out defenders of the battle-scarred fort, relieved of all worry by fresh and willing hands, they slept in peace, the peace of exhaustion. The next day, Sunday, the commotion was greater than ever, as one small detachment after another came in from Lexington, Boonesboro, and Harrodsburg, and all that morning was spent in preparations for pursuit. That afternoon, 182 men went out to hunt for Caldwell, Gertie, and their band of cutthroats, leaving the women behind at the fort. Then came the fatal 19th of August. The 182 frontiersmen entered the trap that Gertie had set at Blue Licks. The pride and valor of Pioneer Kentucky was crushed as if by an avalanche. The Battle of Blue Licks was one of the last battles of the Revolutionary War, although the Kentucky settlers would still be fighting Indians for decades after. This battle was fought ten months after the Battle of Yorktown, which ended the fighting in the east, but not on the frontier. On a hill next to the Licking River, a force of about 50 loyalists allied with 300 Indians ambushed the Kentucky militiamen, who lost about 70 killed and 11 captured, inflicting slight losses of 7 killed and 10 wounded on the enemy. Before they reached the trap, Daniel Boone's opinion was asked, and he answered that the Indians were leaving too obvious a trail, and that he felt they were being led into a trap. Hugh McGarry, who was known as a fierce Indian fighter and an unstable hothead, urged an immediate attack. When no one listened, he mounted his horse and rode across the ford, calling out, Them that ain't cowards, follow me. The men got up and followed McGarry. Boone remarked openly, as he went with them, were all dead men, and crossed the river with them. On the other side of the river, and now with the river at their back, which is a lousy plan for battle, They dismounted and formed a line of battle several rows deep to allow for alternate firing of rifles from one row while the others were still in the process of reloading. Then they advanced uphill. Note their second mistake, as they had given the enemy the high ground. A captain named Todd, along with McGarry, led the center column. Trigg led the right column, and Boone held the left. As Boone had suspected, Caldwell's full force was waiting on the other side, concealed in ravines. When the Kentuckians reached the summit, the Indians opened fire at close range with devastating accuracy. After only five minutes, the center and the right fell back. Only Boone's men on the left managed to push forward. Todd and Trigg, easy targets on horseback, were shot dead. The Kentuckians then began to flee down the hill, fighting hand-to-hand with Indians who had flanked them. McGarry rode up to Boone's company and told him everyone was retreating and that Boone was now surrounded. Boone then ordered his men to retreat. He grabbed a riderless horse and ordered his 23-year-old son Israel to mount it. But before he could, Israel suddenly fell to the ground, shot through the neck. Boone, realizing that his son had been killed, mounted the horse and joined in the retreat. 
When the force returned to Bryan Station, the cabins were filled again with the wounded and dying. The next days were filled with terror, as many were sure that the Indians would return to finish what they had started. Meanwhile, George Rogers Clark, senior commander for all the frontier militias, was widely condemned for allowing the route, even though he had not taken part in it or commanded it. He gathered a force of more than 1,000 men, including Daniel Boone, and began destroying five unoccupied Shawnee villages on the Great Miami River. The Shawnee retreated deep into the woods and never fought again after Blue Licks. Four years later, McGarry, who had survived Blue Licks, approached the Shawnee chief Malutha and asked him if he had been at the Battle of Blue Licks. When Malutha nodded in assent, McGarry killed him with a tomahawk. Shamefully, Malutha had already surrendered and was without a weapon. McGarry was relieved of command at court-martial for killing a prisoner. Every year on the weekend closest to August 19th, a reenactment and memorial service is held at Blue Licks Battlefield State Park on U.S. 69 near Paris and Marysville, Kentucky. In the spring of 1783, most of the men and women of Bryan Station who had suffered so much together loaded their pack horses with their pots and skillets, spinning wheels and provisions, seeds and farming instruments, and with their children and hunting dogs scattered like seeds in the wind to their own lands in the bluegrass wilderness. For the remainder of that year, the fort was occupied by the remaining settlers, who gave temporary shelter to many a soldier retiring from the Revolution, and were now joining the great stream of land hunters that now began to pour into the Canaan of the West, Kentucky's bluegrass region. In 1784, a religious service was performed in one of the cabins by Lewis Craig, and some of the names noted from that day were those who had been there from the start. William Cave, William Ellis, Lewis Craig, and there were still a few Bryans, Thompsons, Boswells, and Monroes there as well. They formed the Baptist Church at Bryan Station there. By 1786, the Indians were still stealing and murdering, but less than in years before. A worm fence enclosed the hill. Several of the fort's log cabins had been combined into a farmhouse, and the tall palisades were disappearing. The buffalo trace was wider now, and enlivened by trains of pack horses carrying goods to and from Lexington. Years later, they were replaced by cars and trucks, and Route 75. Just a few years before the arrival of the first car, the Lexington chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution many of them descendants of those early settlers, as well as some of the ones at Bryan Station, with grateful appreciation of the heroic women of the spring, erected at that spring location a memorial, which, in its simple and substantial beauty, is a faithful type of the true and devoted heroines of that historic fort, as they put it. The original inscription on the memorial reads this way, In honor of the women of Bryan Station, who, on the 16th of August, 1781, faced a savage host in ambush, and with heroic courage and a sublime self-sacrifice that will remain forever illustrious, obtained from this spring the water that made possible the successful defense of this station. This memorial was erected by the Lexington chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, August 16, 1896. In 2019, the Lexington chapter of the American Daughters of the Revolution raised money to send in a special masonry man named Stuart Joint of Lost Art Stone Masonry. To restore the old monument. The article, which was published in the Fayette County Herald Leader, entitled Who Are the Women of Bryan Station and Why Does This Monument Honor Them, stated that an obscure Lexington monument to women's bravery was being restored after over a century. The Lexington DAR launched a $5,000 project to restore and rededicate the structure. Amelia Wisner, registrar of the Lexington DAR chapter, said, 
This monument serves to remind us that these courageous women, in the face of adversity, went about their morning routine and carried pails and buckets of water from this spring back into the fort with the knowledge that a siege was about to happen. The structure had been standing since 1896, but since then was cleaned and had mortar patched in the past, but was never fully restored. Stuart Joint, owner of Lost Art Stone Masonry, specializes in restoring monuments, including cemeteries and other historic structures around the country. His goal is to preserve all of the characteristics of the monument while cleaning it up and fixing portions that have been damaged by weather and wildlife. He cleaned the monument and removed overgrowth of weeds and other plants. He also redid some mortar, along with fixing up some of the surrounding rock. Some honorary names that had been carved into the stone were eroded and were beyond repair, so Joint carved them into new pieces of stone. He's traced out the original carving to ensure the restored carvings look the same as they originally did in 1896. And here are the names of the women that are carved into that wall. Jemima Suggett Johnson, Sally Johnson, Betsy Johnson, Sarah Page Craig, Betsy Craig, Sally Craig, Nancy Craig, Polly Craig, Lucy Hawkins Craig, Polly Hawkins Craig, Frankie Craig, Sally Craig, Elizabeth Johnson Craig, Nancy Craig, Jane Craig Saunders, Polly Saunders, Betsy Saunders, Lydia Saunders, Elizabeth Craig Cave, Hannah Cave, Polly Cave, Fanny Saunders Lee, Sarah Clement Hammond, Mary Herndon Ficklin, Philadelphia Ficklin, Mildred Davis Suggett, Harriet Morgan, Harriet Morgan Helian, Harriet Morgan Nelson, and Sarah Boone Brooks. May your names be remembered forever. I think that says it all. I'd like to add some interesting footnotes. There are many other names on the memorial, the names of the men who were in the fort, the names of people who helped to build and settle the fort. The Bryan Station defenders were listed by Joseph Ficklin, and he said, There were 44 men in the fort, two of whom, Nicholas Tomlinson and Thomas Bell, were sent off to Lexington for help. Of the remaining 42 who had guns and were rated as fighting men, the names of all cannot now be given by me. I named them as their houses stood, beginning with the lowest, near the Big Spring. He also stated, In going over the names, I may have omitted some half a dozen. He states that, All the females, boys, and girls went to the little spring for water. His list evidently names only the heads of families. Sixteen mounted men and thirty-foot soldiers, militia, went to the aid of Bryan Station on August 16, 1782. Their names are not listed. You'll notice a lot of names are repeated on the list. It's also explained, Looking at the lists of names from Bryan Station, your first thought might have been typos, or someone repeated names. To clarify, it's important to look at the naming conventions of the 18th century. The naming convention that appears most prevalent in the list from Bryan Station is the convention of naming the first male children after their grandfather, father's father first, mother's father for the second son. Often the third son received the father's name, unlike today when the oldest son might receive the father's name with the added designation of junior. Less common today is the same naming convention for girls. The first two after grandmothers, the third after a mother. In early families, numerous children, sometimes 14 or more, were not unusual. Birth control practices were not common. More children provided labor for family farms, and it was commonly accepted that not all the children would survive to adulthood. 
"'What makes for so many repetitive names from Bryant Station "'is that so many relatives settled together. "'In an area where you literally trusted your neighbor to watch your back, "'it must have been comforting to know your neighbors were also your family. "'But if you had named your son after your father, "'and your brothers had also named their sons after your father, "'and likewise daughters were named after grandmothers, "'then the number of cousins with the same name "'would have multiplied extensively.' Not only was it very common to have children named after a parent, it was also common to name children after a sibling that had died, usually in infancy. The second child of the same name was usually born after the death of the first. Deceased grandparents, deceased spouses, and deceased siblings of the parents' names were often also used. Polly was a common nickname for Mary, as was Molly. Often these names were devised by changing a single letter. Changes like Sarah into Sally, Dorothy becomes Dolly, Harry becomes Hal, Margaret becomes Peg or Meg or Maggie's. Martha Washington's nickname, used mostly by her husband George, was Patsy. So note that when parents today try for different and unusual names for their children, just be glad that there aren't five Polly Craigs in your family or child's school. Just an added note. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoy our show and if you enjoy our bringing history to you, please do send us a review and please do share with others. We would appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe and we'll be back soon.